Hey folks, welcome to the House of Kraus. I'm your host, Richard Kraus. Uh, no roller skating inside this week, though. We've just redone the floors and, you know, we're trying to keep them nice for at least a little while. Cool show for you today. We've got lots of cool people coming by. First up, Alice Cooper. Now, if you had told my 14-year-old self that Alice Cooper was going to call into the House of Kraus, my head would have exploded. I had the calendar from the inside of the Killer album hanging on my wall, the one where he's hung by a noose and had the scar in his stomach and the blood was kind of dripping upwards for some reason. I had the billion dollar bill. I had all that stuff. I met him once when I lined up at an HMV store so that I could get his autograph, uh, but he called in and we talked about all kinds of stuff. We talked about the ice capades. We talked about uh, the early days of the band. We talked about how, you know, in the 70s, maybe he overindulged a little bit and what that did and how that affected his career. We talked about all that stuff. Then we have someone that can only be described as an icon stopping by the House of Kraus. This is a conversation that we had around the time that Michael Caine made a movie called Harry Brown. That movie was shot in the Elephant and Castle district of London. That's Michael Caine's stomping grounds. He grew up there. It was rough then. It's rough now. We talked about that. And then we talked about his icon status. What is it like to be regarded as an icon. I think the answer might surprise you just a little bit. Here's the phone call that kind of blew my inner 14-year-old's mind, Alice Cooper. When I was 14 years old, Alice Cooper could do no wrong. From the albums Love It to Death, Killer, School's Out, Billion Dollar Babies, Muscle of Love, and Welcome to My Nightmare, man, I wore the grooves out on those records. Listen to them constantly. I even had an unauthorized biography. I read that over and over again. Looked at the posters that hung on my walls. My parents hated the stuff, and that's exactly why people of my age back in those days loved Alice Cooper, because parents just didn't get it. He had a guillotine on stage. He hung himself on stage. He was one of the guys that created shock rock. In fact, in this conversation, a little bit later on, we talk about that a bit. We talk about... The moment, that moment in time when the term shock rock really came to be used when he allegedly bit the head off a chicken in Toronto at the Rock and Roll Revival Tour. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. I watched the documentary Super Duper Alice Cooper. And in it, there's a lot of scenes where you're, I guess the polite thing to say is that you're under the weather. And I wonder now, as a clean and sober person, if it's a little uncomfortable for you to watch that. It, you know, it is, and at the same time, I look at the character and what that was the scariest Alice ever looked. Yeah. I mean, as theatrically, it was terrifying. It really looked like a, a, some kind of monster makeup. And I could see I'd lost 20 pounds. And I could see that I really was, you know, uh, ravaged by the drug. And still, I, I, the one thing about Alice was that there was never an off button. There was never a time when you said, if you said there, you got eight interviews to do and two shows where Alice didn't go, okay. Do you regret any of that now? No, I, I think the work ethic was always there. Even, even when I was a, an alcoholic, I mean, as a strong, strong alcoholic, there was never a time where, I'm, where you know, it ever got in the way of the, the show. I was never a falling down drunk. I was never a drug addict that couldn't perform. 
form. Uh, I was one of those guys that that sort of was on the golden buzz all the time, but never mean, never stupid, never this. I was always very aware of functional, very functional, and that was my problem. If I could have become unfunctional, then it would have been very easy for people to say, okay, time for you to go to a hospital. When I did become dysfunctional, when I started throwing up blood in the morning, that's when my wife said, that's it, let's go. You're in the hospital. And say with Shep, they said, that's it, you're, you're in. It seems like the time you spent in rehab inspired you musically. I wonder if that was a way of dealing with it. Yeah, you know, I mean, especially Bertie Toppin being your best friend. Mm-hmm. And we're both lyricists. We're sitting there going, I, I called him up when I got out and I said, Bernie, you're not going to believe this. I said, I've got 10 characters here that we are going to have so much fun writing about. I said, yeah, it happened. Okay, boom, done. All right, now let's see what we can get out of it. You know, and I started telling him about Jackknife Johnny and, and Millie and Billy and all these people. And what we would do, it was kind of funny, was I would t- say a line, I'd write a line, and then he would write the next line. And then I would write a line, and he would try to top it by writing the next line. So it was like two lyricists playing ping pong. And we would always try to stick the other guy with a word that you couldn't rhyme. Yeah, to hit the sentence with orange or something. Yeah, orange. He did that at one point. He says orange. And I went, after about an hour, I went, door hinge. After the 1986 comeback, you said that you finally realized that Alice could live just on stage, didn't have to filter down into your everyday life. Do you think that your life would have been remarkably different, either personally, creatively, or musically, if you had realized that, say, 10 or 15 years before? Yeah, I think that if, if I would have realized that, if that gray area would have cleared up, you know, and I could put Alice in his proper place, that would have been a lot easier it, uh, but you know like anything else when you're when you're a creative character you really you always take the hard road you know um and it really was a, a matter of uh, uh having to go through that in order to to learn from it uh, i was an addictive personality so uh, you know everything that i could touch i i i, I did that to to get more creative you know it's sort of an addiction you want to get more creative you know uh but you know yeah it, it would have been yeah, i didn't realize that alice was not the problem alice was never the problem alice it was dr frankenstein that was the problem not the monster right because alice never drank on stage right alice didn't never did drugs on stage it was it was the creator of the monster that had the big problem. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it's such that I guess sitting outside of it for someone who doesn't have a, 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 an alter ego or I don't, I don't even know really what how you would describe Alice. Yeah, sense. yeah, and just he's a, you know he was basically a creation that I that I couldn't really be him without creating some some horrific version of myself that was a, a total opposite version of myself. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then stepping into that skin, then once I had the makeup on and the, and the costume, then it was really easy to just go out there and be this other guy. But if you would, if you would say, just go up and be a lead singer, I'd go, I could do that, but 
that really isn't what I'm about, <laughs> you know. Right. Well, it's interesting because it's something that you would not have had any, you probably didn't know anyone you could turn to for advice, really, for this, because it's such a specific thing. At that time, it was, a, it, it was everything you did was some sort of experiment. Right, right. You know, like even I, I realized in the, in the show, in the, in the documentary when I was watching it, there was that one really specific thing that I think that I hope people picked up on was the fact that when we first started, whatever I found backstage was a prop. Right, right. right. It was like if it was a broom, yeah. and we couldn't afford props. You know, so everything that was backstage, if it was a bucket, it could be three different things. I was kind of like Jonathan Winters, you know. Right, right. Uh, I'd look at, a, you know, this and that, and you know, I said, well, that'll work, that'll work. And, and then I thought to myself, as an artist, nobody's ever done this, so nobody can criticize it. A lot of your early costumes came from the ice capades, right? It was all this stuff that they used forever, and it was just all beat up. But I said, but the fact that it is beat up, and it was sort of from the ice capades, and it has history, makes it even cooler. But I mean, to me, see, that was perfectly Alice Cooper. Right. If we could have found old vaudeville clothes, right. we would have. that would have even been better. While I have you, I have to ask about the famous chicken incident. Everybody's heard a version of the story. It's the Rock and Roll Revival show in Toronto. Legend has it that someone threw a chicken on stage, you bit the head off it. Next day, your headlines everywhere. It's the thing that really made you a star. But I wonder, what really happened? And, and really, what did it mean to you? That was the moment that I realized that the audience really needed a, a villain. They, they needed somebody, they wanted so much for Alice to be the guy that killed that chicken that nobody else in rock and roll would have done that except this really creepy guy up here. And I realized at that moment, it, it clicked in my head, I need to make this Alice character even more of a villain now. And now, as it is now, he's this weird guy from maybe outer space or something. But now I want to make him a definitive Moriarty, you know? I want him to be really, really, I can, now I can develop it. And I, now that I see what the audience wants, I can really develop this guy, you know, into something that it's going to be really be fun to play. Can you imagine how much fun it must be for Anthony Hopkins to play Hannibal Lecter? I mean, that, every time I watch that movie, I go, that, he must look forward to playing that character. So did you see Alice as an antidote to all the sort of peace and love stuff that was going on at the time? Absolutely. <laughs> you know, every, in every case, um, uh, we realized a long time ago that we were not hippies. We realized that we did not, we were not into peace and love because, I mean, geez, at our stage show, we were doing pieces of West Side Story with real switchblades. And I mean, we were getting cut, you know, but it looked so great. And the audience, when you look out at the audience, it was like springtime for Hitler, you know. It was this, everybody sat there with this slack jaw going, what? And to me, that was the best reaction I could get from an audience, was this kind of stunned deer in the headlights look. <laughs> How cool was that? Alice Cooper calling into the House of Kraus. You know, that would have blown my 14-year-old mind. Actually, you know what? It kind of blew my present-day mind. So I sit here, switching with mind blown from one legend to another. 
the most famous Cockney accent in the world has to belong to Michael Caine. There is no way that you can sit and speak with him and not be taken back to any number, a countless number of movies that he's been in, sitting in the theater and listening to that voice with that distinctive accent coming off the screen in movies like The Ipcris File, Alfie, uh, Get Carter, A Bridge Too Far, uh, even uh, The Muppet Christmas Carol, it goes on and on and on. He's made countless movies, some great ones, some good ones, and there's a few bad ones in there as well. A few years ago, I talked to him about one of the good ones. It's a movie called Harry Brown, and it's a very personal movie for him because it was shot in the Elephant and Castle district of London. He plays an older man who is watching his neighborhood crumble around him. His friends are being beaten and robbed in the streets, so he decides to do something about it. Now, it's a personal movie for him because he actually grew up in the London area of the Elephant and Castle. And we had a very interesting conversation about what it was like then and what it's like now. You don't want to miss that. You also don't want to miss the last part of the interview. And it's interesting. I've talked to a lot of people that have worked with Michael Caine. And more than one of them has told me that there is no one who is more beloved. There is no one who everyone loves more in England than Michael Caine. You'd be hard-pressed to find anyone there who doesn't love the man. So I asked him about that, and his answer is priceless. You don't want to miss it. This is Michael Caine, the most famous Cockney accent ever. Tell me a little bit about uh, growing up and then many years later going back to shoot in the Elephant Castle section of London. Yeah, well, I, I grew up, and, um, and I always said I come from the slums, you know, which I do. Uh, and that was, uh, uh, um, but uh, when I went back, I didn't realize how lucky I was, because when I talked to the boys there, I, uh, after when we were shooting, like late at night, I'd get the real boys out from there, who would normally be quite scary, but with me they were fine, because I was one of them, you know, even though I was an old man and they were young kids, uh, uh, and what I realized was I was very lucky because I had two things. They didn't have. I had a very happy family life and I got an education. I mean, I didn't go to Oxford. I, I went to grammar school. I got the 11 plus and scholarship, they used to call it. And the other, I had, so I had two things, very valuable things that they didn't have. And one thing I didn't have that they did have, which was drugs. We didn't have drugs. In, and drugs are, are, are the basis of just how feral they have become. And that because it, 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 in the end, it wipes out all feeling for the other person because it has to you know I mean there's a sequence in there where I go to buy a gun off two drug drugs I mean those two people are unfortunately all very real in that world and, and there are lots of them yeah. well the, the young men that are in the film come from that background as well a Some lot of them, them do yeah, yeah oh yeah uh, uh, and, and I noticed that when they were given direction they were very keen to listen and do it right. And if someone had only told them something, you know, I mean, maybe it's woodwork, no matter about direction, you know, or, or something, they would have listened and done it right. But we've neglected a, a massive generation of, of young people, really have. You've been making movies for so long, 
Um, you announced that you were going to retire a few years, yeah. or we had heard that, but you've still been making movies. And I have to tell you, and, and quite honestly, I love the work you're doing now. Well, thank you. And uh, you know, well, the it, thing with this movie is it changed me. And how so? In as much as I started out, let's go out and make a film about killing all these scumbags. Right. And then I met these people and realized they were helpless just as much as the victims. Right. And they, they'd been neglected and they needed help, you know, which is, would be a very unpopular thing. We're going to help a load of killer yeah. junkies, you know, yeah. give, put them in prison. Prison doesn't do anything. No, it just teaches them how yeah, to be clever. Teach them how to, be, how to be clever. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Michael Caine is probably the only person in Britain that everybody loves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I, yeah, I don't know. I, you, you, I was, they said well, you're an icon now. I said, well, I don't know how to do that. I said, because there's no, you can't go. There's no lessons, you know, and there's, there's not a special icon bar where you all go and meet up and ask what you're supposed to do. I said, hey, you call me an icon now. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> so, it, it, do you just consider yourself uh, a, a working actor? I consider myself lucky. Lucky. I've been lucky. Michael Caine, I loved talking to him. He's a guy who's been around for so long and made so many movies that they're actually starting to remake his older movies, but he's still around and he's still working, so he's actually starring in them. So Get Carter and Sleuth, he's appeared in both of those. I'm sure there'll be more to come before Michael Caine finally hangs it up. You know, Al Scooper, Michael Caine in one show, that's enough. I think that's enough. That's a big show. Anyway, the guy's coming over to fix the air conditioner, so I'm going to wrap it up. I'm going to shut the front door at the House of Kraus, kick everybody out, but come back next week. Come back next week. It'll be nice and cool in here. We can sit back and listen to some more interesting conversations. You never know who's going to stop by. 